Well, good evening. It is good to see you all out this evening. What a beautiful afternoon we had. I was uh, out enjoying it out in uh, the, ball, the edge of the ball field and seeing the colors beginning to change in the trees. The clouds began to lift off and just a reminder of the new season that uh, we are about to enter into. It reminded me a lot of the seasons we go through in life, and one of those things as we turn to the book of Ruth is, and perhaps there's other seasons too, but as a parent, maybe you think back to those times when your child would take a book, and they would come and sit up on your knee or on your lap and ask you to read the book. Maybe as grandparents or aunts and uncles, you've had that opportunity, a child will come and And they'll bring with them a book, and it's their favorite book, and you've probably read it a million times. And as you take that book now, you say, okay, pop on up here, once upon a time, the end. How many have ever gotten by with that? No, it's usually like, no, that's not what it says. And the book has been memorized, you know that the child has memorized the book and they know every letter, every word, every picture on every page and they want you to embellish every bit of it. But how easy it is for you and I then to do the same kind of thing when we're telling a story or we're telling an event or a series of events and someone comes to you and says, well, how did that event turn out? And you say, well, it kind of started out rough, but it ended well. (laughs) That's once upon a time, the end. It's the same kind of thing. There's a whole lot in the middle that you need to remember. We do this in Scripture. We think of the narratives that have played out, these real-life events. Yeah, Noah built an ark, and then he left the ark. Well, what happened in between? What was the... What was it like to put all the animals into the ark? What was it like that he would send out the dove and the and it wouldn't return? What was all of that like? We tend to do this with the cross. Jesus came and he died and rose again. It's easy for us to move through each and every portion very, very rapidly and miss the important elements of the book. And that's what we don't want to do tonight. We don't want to miss the meat of this climax that has been building. And we typically will try to do that, when, especially when we become very familiar with the series of events that have unfolded. And so tonight, as we're digging into the book of Ruth, we're into that last chapter, but it is not, once upon a time, the end. It is this specific chapter that begins to teach us who our kinsman redeemer is and what he has done for us through the life of Boaz and Ruth. And so tonight as we begin to see the drama that unfolds at the city gates, there is a plan and a purpose, but there is a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of question marks and there is one stone-faced Boaz who is going to make his appeal without making his appeal, and the Lord is going to reward that with Ruth. As we dig into the text before us this evening, we begin to see this drama at the city gates. I want to start in verse 1 of chapter 4. We're going to read a couple verses, and then we're going to ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word, really through the 
first part of verse 4. The scripture says this, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time and his word this evening. Gracious Heavenly Father, this is the chapter we've been waiting for as the narrative of Ruth begins to unfold. Lord, there is significant intrigue in this text that is before us tonight. There is a lot that is outside of Boaz's control, and yet we see a faithful man, a godly man, who we were introduced to in chapter 2, and now through the last two chapters, we've endeared ourselves to him as he has endeared himself to Ruth. We are drawn by, in essence, the prince of the story. But we are thankful that this is no fairy tale. In fact, the wonderful truth that will unfold for us is that Boaz will represent to us our kinsman redeemer, who is not concerned whether we are Gentile or Jew, but has demonstrated a love for us in that while we were yet sinners, would take our place on the cross for us to pay the price to redeem us and then allowing us to become his bride, bride that is the church. Lord, the pieces as we unpack and unfold them tonight will begin to reveal to us the great truth of who our kinsman redeemer is, illustrated through the life of Boaz. And as we unpack and unfold that in the weeks to come, should you tarry, we find greater joy, and we relish in it all the more as we understand and implement the principles that we learn here this evening. So Lord, I pray that you'd give me the words to speak. We know that there are some elements in this text that is outside of our cultural contexts, It's difficult maybe for us to comprehend and understand, but I pray that you'd give me the words to speak, that your spirit would move in us, that we'd be responsive and fall in love, in greater love with our Savior because of what we have studied here this evening. So Lord, we love you and we thank you for our time and your word. We ask that you would be glorified in all that we say and do the rest of the evening. And we exalt you and thank you for it. And it's in Christ's name that we pray it. Amen. We begin this evening, and similar, our outline is in your bulletin, is similar to what we've done in times past, where we will just provide the one point, and then the next point, and so forth. And the idea is that you fill in all that the Lord is prompting you to fill in there, that you're not limited by my thoughts or by what I'm necessarily trying to draw from the text, but also that you would have understanding of the text, that you would interact with it better. So this evening we start, as in the text that we have just read, as Boaz and the relative meet at the city gates. And there's a lot we need to understand because Boaz is waiting at the gate when we begin in chapter 4, verse 1. Remember where we left off. We left off in chapter 3, verse 18, and we spent all week last week spending 
just a few more minutes looking into this verse. And as we look here, we recognize that Ruth's job was to sit still. Can you imagine how antsy Ruth is? But Boaz today is going to go to the city gates. He's going to talk with this other relative, this closer potential redeemer, and my entire future is at stake. Her entire future was at stake. How do you sit still? Maybe you've been in a doctor's office and you know that the news is either going to be really good or really bad. Sit still. How easy is that? I cannot do that. I struggle to sit still. Especially on those bed chair things they give you. In those rooms and it's uncomfortable and it's cold. And you're going to move and... This is where Ruth is at. Not in the waiting room or not in the room waiting for the doctor, but in a, in a situation that her entire future is being decided outside of her control. That is where she is at. Meanwhile, verse 1 of chapter 4, Boaz is not sitting idly by. In fact, listening to Naomi Boaz will not sit until he's resolved the issue. And it appears from the text that the very same morning that Naomi has told Ruth to sit still, Boaz is sitting at the city gates and he's waiting there. Notice again verse 1. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoke came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. Business is about to be conducted. The events of this chapter illustrate the real heart of the book of Ruth. Without this chapter, there is no book of Ruth. Without the events that unfold in this moment, there is nothing to write about. But it is here that we learn a lot about the work that it took for our own redemption. And so not just in the text that we study tonight, but in the text that we study, Lord willing, next week, we're going to see our redemption unfold, specifically next week as we have the wedding ceremony. But we see the work that it's going to take to get there as Boaz is sitting down now with this other redeemer. Boaz arrives early at the gates of the city after the midnight conversation the night before. And here he is, first thing in the morning, sitting at the gates the gate, so that we understand, because we don't have anything that is like this, that is similar in our society, the gate, so that we understand, is just inside of the actual gates. The gates are typically left open uh, throughout the, the evening and even into the morning, but there's a, an open space right behind the gate where everybody's going to come through, where everybody bottlenecks down as they're coming in and out of the city itself, they're going to come right here to an open space where business was conducted. The elders and the leading citizens of the city would go there for all of the gossip and news and the town crier, and, and they would go there as well for conducting legal business. And that is what is about to take place here. What is decided at the city gate is legally binding. You don't haul somebody off to court, you haul somebody off to the gates. You go to the gates and you ask the elders, what is their opinion of this situation? And whatever their opinion was, that is the legally binding decision that all parties must live by. That is the Jewish legal system. 
And the decisions from the elders is truly the final word. Now, I want to take us out of the context of Ruth for just a second and uh, picture another city gate that Christ spoke of. Because it is helpful for us to understand what significant statements are being made about city gates. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 16, keep your finger here in Ruth, turn over to Matthew chapter 16 for a moment. One of my favorite places uh, to take people when I go to Israel is the uh, gnarled cave that sits next to the old destroyed temple to a god, a god, a demigod named Pan. This is known as, it's all the way up the Binus Spring, all the way up to the Binus Springs, at the edge of the land of Dan in the north, the newer land of Dan. Dan had land in the southern part of Israel as well, but they moved up later. This is a place that Christ took his disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus answered uh, Simon, uh, that is Peter, he's, uh, Peter is saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's verse 16. Skip down to verse 18. And Christ says, I will tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now there's a lot of theology that we're going to have to work out at some point in this text. But I want you to notice Jesus is sitting likely at the Banus Springs, right in front of a giant gnarled hole that was believed to be the gates of Hades. And there was a temple, the temple there to the god Pan. Now we get our word pandemonium, pandemic, from this god. It's a god of chaos. And it was a God that many in Israel had fallen into the false worship of. And Jesus is sitting here with his disciples and he's using this gnarled opening as an illustration. And he says that his church will not have problems overcoming the city gates of hell. What does that mean? What did Jesus refer to in that text? The imagery seems odd to our Western mindset, but what Christ is referring to is that the decisions and the determinations of hell will not stand against the church, even though they were the final decisions of the elders at the gates of Hades. Isn't that comforting to know? The church is an offensive church. But the determinations, final though they may be for the inhabitants and the rulers, Satan and his minions of Hades, they will not prevail against the church. They will not win the day against the church. Christ is saying whatever final decision Satan makes is not the final word. And to that, we who follow Christ in the age of the church say, Amen. Praise God that the determinations and the plans and the schemes and the decisions that were made on the city gates of Hades cannot win the day. Christ said they won't. That's the same kind of imagery, although that's the negative example. That's the same kind of imagery that's taking place back in the book of Ruth. So turn back there. 
Boaz is sitting at the city gates. There is a determination that is about to be made and the inhabitants of the city must live by those determinations. Boaz waits there, the city gates, for a fellow redeemer. It's fascinating to me, we're going to see this, Samuel wants to notice that the hand of God is at work. Because there's no guarantee that this other redeemer is going to walk past. It's likely, but there's no guarantee. There's going to be a giant context here that certainly Boaz has thought through, but Boaz is going to be able to speak with an eloquence and an ability that this other redeemer is not going to see coming. So Samuel is very clear to help us understand that God is at work in these events that are about to unfold. Boaz waits there for a fellow redeemer. While he's waiting, or at least at the same time that the Redeemer shows up, he chooses 10 elders and he says, sit over here, I want you to hear what's about to happen and I want you to make a ruling, a judgment on this significant and important decision that will affect the land of Elimelech. Samuel, again, is reminding us that God is at work here. 10 elders provide the minimum number required for a quorum. Does Boaz know what he's doing? He didn't choose nine. He's like, ah, nine's good enough. He chose ten. Why? Because ten constituted a quorum. The decision of the ten would be the decision that Elimelech's family, whoever that may be, in this case Naomi and Ruth, and the other redeemer and Boaz would have to live by. Isn't there some intrigue here? Remember the way that Boaz loves Ruth? Remember the care and provision and protection? And now he's placed it all in the hands of ten elders. Placed it all there. The question is over the land of Elimelech. Notice verses uh, 2 and following. We talked about verse 2, but let's pick it up again. He says, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you'll redeem it, redeem it. Boaz speaks to the Redeemer as brother. In fact, ESV is translated it friend, sit here friend, but some of your translations have translated that brother. And so what is the idea of brother? Was this redeemer Boaz's brother? No, the idea is that he's of the same clan of Elim that Elimelech and Boaz belong to. So he's in the same family unit. This is like saying, hey, relative, I want you to sit down here with me and let's discuss this piece of land that, according to the Levitical law, needs to be redeemed. And then it would revert back, if there was an heir, it would revert back to Elimelech's line, but there is no heir. And so Elimelech, his parcel of land would then be retained by the Redeemer, in this case, according to the Levitical law. Boaz begins by providing an accurate detail, but he is working out his plan. Did you catch what he said? He said, Naomi, who has returned from Moab, she has a parcel of Elimelech's land, and it needs to be purchased. You may have done the same thing when you have negotiated the purchase of a large 
item, such as your car or your house, where you really want the car, but you can't let the salesman know that you want the car. Because if you let the salesman know that you want the car, you're going to pay $5,000 more for the car than if you just told the salesman, eh, I'm, I'm going to go look at this car over here. Now you begin to haggle. That's, that's kind of what Boaz is doing here. But notice how Boaz handles this. It is as if Boaz is saying, hey, I'm not sure you know this or not, but there is some land and it belongs to our clan. It's part of Elimelech's land and Naomi's selling it. If you're not interested, I, I'd probably take it. That's really how Boaz is handling this. I want you to know, kind of interested in the land, but you're the first redeemer. If you want it, go ahead and take it. Redeem it. Can you imagine Boaz masking his emotions at this point? Think of the feeling that you have when you're negotiating for a car, let alone negotiating for a wife. That's what Boaz is doing right now. He's negotiating with his kinsman redeemer. As he's negotiating with his kinsman redeemer, you can imagine his heart pounding. There's a lot more at risk than just a piece of land. There's a lot more at risk than a piece of land. What do you say when someone asks if you want the good or bad news? Just think about that. Someone comes to you and says, I've got some good news and bad news. What do you want first? What do we typically say? You want the? Some want the good. I'm hearing some want the bad. So we're divided actually in here. I'm one who says, give me the bad news first because I want the good news to follow. I want to end on a good note. Typically, we want to start with the bad news first, but Boaz is shrewd in that he starts what the Redeemer would perceive to be the good news. There's land. Anytime you can glean more land that you could harvest upon, and it is of the same familial line, the Redeemer, the first Redeemer, the relative of Boaz, would say, this is a good deal. And indeed... Notice what he says as we look at the cost now of redemption. The cost of redemption. Beginning at the middle of verse 4, he says, But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one beside you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Boaz starts with the good news, and he goes to the bad news in the Redeemer's mind. The good news is there's a piece of land, Redeemer. If you want to purchase it, go ahead and purchase it. Oh, yeah, since you want to purchase it, let me tell you about the strings that are attached. There's a Moabite widow. And according to the Levitical law, you will need to raise up an heir through the Moabite woman of the line of Elimelech. The Redeemer 
verse 4 begins with, before we get all the way into verse 5, the Redeemer says, it certainly is a good deal. I imagine for a moment, even though this appears to be, and we know this is Boaz's plan, the text does not seem to give us any indication that Boaz expected any other answer than the Redeemer, the closer Redeemer, saying, yes, I will take it. He then is going to fill in the backstory. But can you imagine the heart of Boaz in this moment? The other Redeemer says, yeah, I'll take it. I imagine Boaz's heart skipped a beat. The stone-faced negotiator in Boaz almost cracks. The Redeemer sees the land as a deal and he jumps at the chance to expand his holdings and then Boaz lets the shoe drop. I'm going to use this euphemism here a little bit. I don't know if you're familiar with the shoe drop euphemism or uh, how it came about, but it was one of those things when people lived in urban environments, especially in Europe, it came out of a European setting, and the neighbor above you in your apartment complex would drop one shoe and it would scare you, and then you waited for the other shoe to drop. So I'm going to pick up on that euphemism. We're going to use that euphemism here. As the first shoe drops, there's a startling effect to the one who's actually dropping the shoe. And that is Boaz dropping the shoe first. He says, if you redeem the land, you will also need to redeem Ruth, the Moabite, and perpetuate the name of Elimelech. This is the bad news for the other redeemer. Samuel records several key things that Boaz includes here in his argument. And remember, there's ten witnesses listening to this. As Boaz begins to express this, he says, First, there is a widow who is of childbearing age. And the land that belongs to Elimelech actually belongs to the heir that will come from her. According to the law of Moses. Ruth is not your average widow. She is a Moabite. And to be the redeemer, you're going to need to risk your own inheritance, your own line, to raise up an inheritance line of Elimelech to further this claim. One author writes this at this juncture. They say this. Let's read verse 5 again. As this other guy who would have heard it, let it sink in. This is how they do so. He says, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must. <laughs> what? I must? Also redeem Ruth. Wait, who's she? The Moabitess. Oh, no. Our ancient enemies, the pagan idolaters. The widow of the deceased. What? She's been married. And I'm supposed to marry her when I buy the land? In order to raise up the name of the deceased, I am responsible to give her an heir. I'll have a half-Gentile child to raise him up on his own inheritance. You mean that I have to give the child this piece of land that I just bought because it is his for an inheritance. Can you imagine this poor redeemer now processing all of this information? 
It's all legal. It's all binding according to the law of Moses. And this was the right of the widow to demand these things to be done for her. In fact, we're going to think of the account in Genesis where Tamar does a similar thing with Judah, demanding the rights. At this news, the Redeemer backs away. The closer Redeemer is now trying to bail out as fast as he can. Notice his reason. He says this in verse 6, Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Lest my name be blotted out, I will not redeem Ruth. For just a moment, does anybody know the name of this Redeemer? No. Isn't it fascinating that his name was blotted out of the pages of Scripture? Because he left the responsibility of redemption to another. And that would be Boaz. The act of redeeming would require that he marry Ruth, raise a child by Ruth, to take the land and a portion of the rest of the man's inheritance, his children to this point, would lose a portion of their inheritance because the child that was born of Ruth would receive the portion due one of the heirs of the landowner. So he would put his own name at risk. He would work hard and diligent to give all of his children an inheritance, but the, all the work and all of the toiling that he made onto this parcel of ground would go to the heir of Ruth the child born to Ruth. This means that his other children would receive less for the child of a foreign woman. It also means that there would be the potential to have his name suffer the same fate as the name of Elimelech and to be at risk of disappearing from the Jewish names. As quickly as this guy said, yes, I will buy it, he's now looking for the fire escape. If he purchases the land, he has to care for Naomi, and he has to marry a foreign woman from Moab. He has to raise a child with a Gentile widow. He has to give away the land to that child. He will lose whatever he's invested in that property because it will become that child's. And the son that he might have with Ruth will not even have his name, but have the name of the wife's deceased husband. Who in his right mind would do such a thing? There's only one person willing to do any of that, someone in love with that widow. And that overrules everything. Verse 6, as we have said, or as we have read it, rather, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. The closer Redeemer is now looking to get out. And if he can push it off onto Boaz, great. And that's really how he feels. He's going to push it off on Boaz. And the other shoe drops. A transfer of the sandal. What is a transfer of the sandal? Notice in verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the matter of attesting in Israel. 
So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Doesn't that seem like an odd custom? Like, here, I've wore out this shoe. You can have this shoe. Uh, I'm missing one, but you can have it. What does this custom mean? To us, we don't understand it. But hearing all that would be required to redeem the land, the relative passes on his right to redeem, and he pulls off his sandal, and he gives it to Boaz. And in giving it to Boaz, notice verse 9, And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Milan. Says all that was mine, all that was Elimelech's is now mine. The sandal, as the relative takes it off, the giving of the sandal was an image of saying that those feet would not walk or work that land at all. Walk on or work that land. So, in essence, what the closer redeemer is saying is, "Here's my shoes. Take my roll, and you walk a mile in my shoes." To use another euphemism. Because I'm not going to redeem it. The rights of that land is yours. I will not walk on it. Even though it was my right to redeem, I will not redeem. You take my shoes and walk in it. Literally, he's saying, Boaz, you walk the path in my shoes. You walk in my place. You are the redeemer. The sandal transferred ownership of the land. As soon as this had transpired, Boaz looks at the ten and he reveals the game play. Notice what the text says. He has already said in verse 9 that he has bought the land and he goes into verse 10 and he says, Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Milan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead might not, may not be cut off from among his brothers from the gate of his native place, you are witnesses this day. Boaz takes care of all the paperwork. Having done what he needed to do with a closer relative, he leaves no stone unturned as Boaz turns to the city officials. And he leaves nothing to chance. He diligently walks through the full transaction. He says to the elders and to all the people, beginning in verse 9, you are witnesses this day that I have bought... For I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilean and Milan. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Milan, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gates of his native place. You are witnesses this day. In essence, what Boaz is saying is, Everything is done, the transaction is complete, and every element of redemption that is required has been paid for. Nothing is left. Ruth didn't have anything else to go and redeem. There was no other elements for her to participate in. There was no other work for her to do in order for the redemption to be secure. Boaz had paid it all. Full and complete. Leaving nothing left to do. We're going to consider that great truth. I just want you to file that away until, Lord willing, next week. But consider that great truth as we think of our own redemption. Christ paid it in full. There was nothing left for you to work out your own redemption.
There's stuff for you to do in your own sanctification, which is an expression of your appreciation and great love for what it is that your Savior has done for you after salvation. But you cannot work for or provide for or in any other way develop any elements in which you participated in your own redemption. Ruth, her only job was to sit still. Boaz went to work. Boaz, excuse me, Boaz paid the price. And notice the proclamation then of the people. These people have no idea of the proclamation that they're about to make. And I want to highlight this. We're going to spend more time on the kinsman redeemer, but I don't want us to miss this. Notice what happens in verses 11 and, and verse 12. It says, Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. In other words, may you have lots and lots of children, lots and lots of sons. Continuing on, it says, May you act worthily in Ephrath and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord said he would give you by this woman. We're going to look into verse 12 a little more next week as we dig into it. This is a, a fascinating account that takes us all the way back to Genesis. In the book of Genesis, we see it unfold. We'll, we'll discuss that more next week, Lord willing. But these people have no idea how their blessing that they pronounce upon Boaz at this moment. There's, there's great joy. Remember, these are the same folks who, when Naomi came back, said, hey, is, is that Naomi? And she said, don't call me Naomi. Don't be, call, don't be calling me the gracious one. Call me bitter. Call me Myra, because I'm bitter. These people, over the last few weeks, have begun to see a transition and a change in the life of Naomi, and now they're celebrating with Naomi, and Naomi's not even there, but they're celebrating that Boaz will be the kinsman redeemer. They've watched this uh, principle lived out, this Levitical law lived out before their very eyes, but they have no idea that the blessing that they pronounce upon Boaz will become so instrumental in the course of history. Ruth will become the great-grandmother of King David. Boaz and Ruth will continue the line through which our Lord Jesus Christ will come. The true great kinsman redeemer. What was it about Ruth? Isn't that, a, isn't that an intriguing question? What was it about Ruth that made Boaz go, I want to marry that girl. Have you ever questioned Boaz's motivations? What made him interested in a foreign woman as a godly man? Why risk the stigma of being married and having children, being married to a foreigner and having children that were half Jewish, half Gentile? Because Boaz was willing to do what his father had done. When Salmon, the father of Boaz, married his wife, he married another foreign pagan woman. Her name? 
Rahab. You'll remember her from the book of Joshua. The prostitute who lived in the walls of the city of Jericho. Solomon, Boaz's father, marries Rahab. And some say, well, there's got to be some more years intervening there, and perhaps that there are. But the text doesn't give us that. The text doesn't say there was another generation in there. So we don't know that, but think of it. Boaz isn't afraid to trust his future children to the care of a former Gentile idolater because he was a child or grandchild, I would say child, raised by a former Gentile idolater. He knew what it was like. The woman listed in Matthew 1 and in Hebrews 11 is that former Gentile idolater, and her name is Rahab the harlot. Isn't it wonderful to see how God prepared Boaz's heart to love a Gentile bride to become her kinsman redeemer? But the object of our study is not Boaz. Don't forget your kinsman redeemer. Jesus Christ redeems people with a past. In fact, he has chosen a bride that carries both Jewish and Gentile blood. A bride that is composed of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, according to Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. And praise God that our kinsman redeemer loves a half-Gentile and half-Jewish bride. And his love for us has not sullied his name, has not blotted it out, has not changed it, has not jeopardized his reputation. It has only enhanced it with an undiminished beauty. Consider the choirs in heaven, the tongues of every tribe, every nation, and every people, proclaiming the excellencies of our groom. Christ. He is the kinsman redeemer of grace. We're going to dig in, Lord willing, next week into verse 12 and following because we're really going to get into this great and wonderful truth that Christ is our kinsman redeemer. As we dig into the wedding ceremony, as it were. And then the book of Ruth just comes to a conclusion, a very rapid conclusion, as it ends in the most spectacular way ever, with a genealogy. I don't know about you, but genealogies can be monotonous, can they? They're names you don't understand, people you don't see, you you don't put a face with them. But the very last verse of the book of Ruth says this, and this is where we end. Obed, who Boaz will have through Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you that our kinsman Redeemer has not in any way sullied his name because he paid the price that we rightly should have paid and could not pay. 
Lord, he has not sullied his name in being our lamb, our spotless lamb that would shed innocent blood to redeem a people who were at that time enemies. Lord, when we reflect upon our own condition, we recognize our depravity. We recognize and we cry out as the Apostle Paul, oh, what a wretched person I am. But we praise you that in our wretched condition, you saved us by becoming our kinsman redeemer, paying the price for our redemption, not leaving any to chance, not leaving any to be supplied by us. But you paid the full price to redeem a blemished and broken bride from a world that is filled with sin and despair. I pray that these truths would be on our heart, whether we're young or old tonight in this room. These truths would be so near to our thinking that we would leave here contemplating their wonder throughout the week. That you would love a wretched sinner like me. Lord, one day we long for and we look toward this supper that we will have with our bridegroom. We look forward to the consummation of all that your scripture tells us is there for those who are followers and believers in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be diligent in proclaiming your excellencies, proclaiming the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We know that your patience is waiting for the last ones to come to know you as Savior, and so we pray that you would give us the opportunity to share Christ with those, that they may come to know you as Savior, and then we will be ushered in to the marriage feast of the Lamb of God. Lord, I praise you that in our study in First Thessalonians, we are keeping a mind's eye on eternity, and this is why. The truths that we have studied here in the book of Ruth remind us of this relationship that you have with your church. And we long for it. We desire it. And we are looking ahead with great anticipation for it. Lord, so tonight I thank you for the heart of the book of Ruth, the study that we have enjoyed over the last few weeks. We have just a couple weeks left. I pray that you would give us a great understanding, a greater appreciation of this book, and that your name would be glorified in all that we do and say as we depart from here. Lord, we cannot express our gratefulness that you are our kinsman redeemer. I pray that we would be those who are diligently living out its great truths, that your name would be glorified and exalted among all names in our lives and evident to the lives of those around us. We pray your blessing as we depart from here, that we would be your ambassadors, faithful and true, uh, inviting others to participate in this marriage feast of the Lamb. We give you the glory and the honor for it this evening. It's in Christ's name that we pray these things. Amen.